exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you in the rows. And if you don't own one, feel free to take that for yourself. We're going to be starting in verse 22. So while you're turning, let me tell you that we've been studying the whole book of, of John verse by verse for a few months now. And before we dive into this passage, I want to give you the big picture of what John is doing. At the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus had a conversation with a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, a ruler of Israel. And, and he came to Jesus, respecting him as a teacher, but Jesus showed him that he really knew nothing at all. So as Jesus is telling them, he's urging them, you have to be totally remade, what the Bible calls being born again. You can't have faith in yourself, your good works, your good efforts. It's only in God. God has to perform a miracle in your hearts. So John, the gospel writer, gives us this example of someone who does not believe, who's faced with the reality of who Jesus is and his message, and Nicodemus when he first hears it, doesn't believe. And so he transitions from the conversation with Nicodemus to a, a new figure, someone we're familiar with, John the Baptist, to give us an example of what does it look like when someone believes this message. So in these stories, Jesus is trying to give us a picture of what we're supposed to be. Don't be like Nicodemus, be like John the Baptist. And so as we dive in this morning, that's what we should be thinking of. That's, that's what we should be looking to. How are we to be like John the Baptist and not like Nicodemus? So let's pray and then we'll dive into this text. Dear Heavenly Father, we come again to your word after another long week. I pray that you would clear our minds, soften our hearts, Make us teachable and open to what your word has for us this morning. Help us to see Jesus for who he truly is. We can do nothing without your help. So guide our spirits this morning as we seek to know you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. What makes you happy? Where do you find joy in life? Everyone wants happiness. But most people have no idea how to be happy. It should be mo no surprise to most of us that in 2020, the University of Chicago did a study and did a poll and found that in 2020, Americans were the unhappiest they have been in 50 years. Of those who responded to the poll, just 14% of U.S. adults say they're very happy. And we live in one of the richest countries on earth in one of the most prosperous times in world history. And we can go onto the internet and go shopping for anything our hearts desire. And we press a button and it shows up our, on our doorstep. And yet we are totally unhappy. We have all the entertainment that we could ever ask for. We have access to libraries and healthcare that our forefathers couldn't have even imagined. But we're no happier for it. It's never enough, is it? As miraculous as it seems, the happiness that the world has to offer is incredibly fleeting. It's temporary. It doesn't last. And you may have a day where everything goes perfectly in your life. And then all it takes is for someone to make one snide comment, one mean remark, for someone to cut you off in, in, in traffic, and your happiness is gone in an instant. You were created in the image of God, you were created with purpose and dignity and value, and you were created to worship, 
the true God of the universe. You and I have souls that will exist for all eternity, that will exist forever, and so we will never find complete joy and lasting happiness in the temporary pleasures that this world has for us. The only way for our eternal souls to find joy that lasts is if you find your joy in something that is eternal and unchanging. And that's what John, the gospel writer, has for us in this passage. And if we take ourselves away from the pleasures of the world, if we take our eyes off of the things that our hearts desire naturally, then we can find joy that will last us through all. And that's my prayer for us as a church this morning. That we can find a joy that lasts. My prayer is that we would have an eternal joy based on Jesus and who he is. Because if our happiness is based off anything that is temporary, then so will our happiness be temporary. But in this passage, we find the way to find complete and lasting joy. In John 3 verses 20 through 2 through 30. We're going to find two keys to finding joy. Two keys to finding joy. First key to finding joy is this. Pride destroys lasting joy. Pride destroys lasting joy. We're going to find that in verses 22 through 27. The second key to finding joy is complete joy is found in looking to Jesus. We'll find that in verses 28 through 30. Complete joy is found in looking to Jesus. But let's start with pride. Look with me to verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. We'll stop right there. So after Jesus' nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, he leaves the city and he heads into the countryside. And now he's not just preaching, but he's telling people to be baptized in a similar way to John. This baptism was a baptism of repentance. In the Gospels, when Jesus starts preaching, this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent in the original language simply means a change of mind. It doesn't mean to stop sinning entirely. That's what some people mean. That's not what it means. But it means to recognize that you've done wrong and to turn from it and to turn to God for forgiveness. Repentance is not a work, but it's an attitude of the heart. And so those who felt shame and guilt for their sin would come to John the Baptist and they'd be washed as a symbol of what God had done in their hearts. So Jesus is doing the same thing, washing people because of their repentance. It's important to note that Jesus was not actually performing any of the baptisms. If you jump to chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Jesus' disciples were actually the ones baptizing. It wasn't Jesus himself, which is important to know because earlier in the book, John the Baptist says, there's one who's coming after me who doesn't baptize with water, but baptizes with the Spirit. And if Jesus performs some baptisms, then that may make us think that Jesus is doing something miraculous in, in baptism, and baptism is what saves you. But there's this disconnect. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. And water baptism represents what Jesus does in people's hearts, but it's, it's not the same thing. So it's just important to emphasize that. So, so Jesus is in this Judean countryside, which is in southern Israel. And it seems like John the Baptist was in northern Israel. And the text tells us that he is still actively baptizing. He's still having people come to us. So he went to a place with much water because there were much people. There were many people coming to be baptized. Jesus' ministry has begun, but it still seems like John has more than enough work to do. And it's interesting here 
that John the Gospel writer notes that John the Baptist was doing this right before he went into prison. We know from the other Gospels that it was very soon into Jesus' public ministry that John was arrested and then later beheaded. John was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He probably knew what was coming, but what does he choose to do in this passage? He continues to baptize. He continues to preach. He continues to call sinners to repentance. The German monk and reformer Martin Luther once said, Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. If tomorrow was your last, a lot of us would live our lives quite differently. But John is in a position where he has been called by God and he knows that the end is near and he continues to serve and to be faithful regardless of his imminent death. There's a lot I don't know about God's plan, but there's a lot I do know because of what's in the Bible. And I know that if you're still kicking, there's still work to do. Amen? We may never know why God does things the way he does things, but his ways are higher than our way. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His plans are better than our plans. He is sovereignly directing the entire universe to accomplish his plans and his purpose. And he is working all things together for the glory of his name and the good of those who love him. Amen, church? Now, there's something to say about these verses before I move on. This passage is not primarily about baptism, but there's a great deal we learn about baptism from this passage. In verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anion near Salem. Why? Because water was plentiful there. Why do you need much water unless baptism is by immersion? If baptism was just by sprinkling, John just would have needed a well. But he goes to the river because he needs much water. Why does he go to the river? Why does he need much water? Because baptism is a gospel symbol. Both in Romans and in Colossians, Paul says that in baptism, we're buried with Jesus and we're raised to new life in Jesus. Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's a ceremony that's reserved for only those who have repented. It's only for those who have turned from their sins and trusted alone in Jesus and have been united with Christ in faith. The pattern in the New Testament is always that someone believes and then they are baptized. And even in the Great Commission, the part about making disciples of all nations comes before baptism. So this is the last time that baptism is brought up in the book of John. So if you come from a Wesleyan or Episcopal or Presbyterian background, don't worry, I'm going to shut up about it. But my challenge to you is this. What do you do with baptism in the New Testament? Why does John need much water? Why is the pattern always repentance and then baptism? There are a great many preachers and theologians who I love dearly and have respect, and they're much smarter than I. Even Martin Luther, I quoted earlier, would not agree with what I'm saying right now. And and so I humbly and genuinely respect those who disagree with this. Um, So so I I respect those who interpret this differently and have a different view. But, But listen to this. If you are seeing what I'm seeing in the Bible right now, and you have not been baptized by immersion after your conversion, then my challenge to you is to obey the command of the Bible and be baptized in the way that it says to you. And that's not the main point of the text, but just something I thought I should bring up. And once again, we're done with it in the book of John, so... You can rest assured that it won't come up again. So let's, let's go back to the text. Look with me to verses 25 through 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. 
And we don't know, let's stop right there. We don't know what their discussion involved, but we do know what they said to John. Their question is not about the mode of baptism, what baptism represents, or why the baptisms are happening. They are asking, who does this man think he is? Baptisms are leaders' thing. Why is this man baptizing? But underneath this question is their real motive. They are jealous and they are prideful. Their, plot, their pride and their plans are getting in the way of seeing who Jesus is and what he's doing. C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, wrote, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Though we saw that John was still preaching and the people were still coming and he was still baptizing, John's followers are upset. In their minds, all they could think about is, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for my reputation, for me? And notice two things about verse 26, if you look. First, they exaggerate the, the situation. They say all are going to him, and we've already seen that this is not the case. This is jealous exaggeration. And also notice something that's missing here. They don't name Jesus. They don't call him the Christ. They, they don't even describe him as John did earlier in this book as the Lamb of God. Why? This is how jealousy talks. And we have to ask ourselves, do we talk this way? Do we jealously compare ourselves to others, exaggerate the accomplishments of others? Do we have a problem with pride? But these disciples of John don't even see the good that's happening. They are blinded by their pride and they don't realize that people are repenting. They're so blind that they don't even realize the Messiah has come. All they cared about was their reputation and the reputation of their leader. And they didn't see that eternal life was walking before their very eyes. Our church has existed for 190 years. There's a rich history of God working through this local church in this area. And I know that many of you fought desperately to keep this place open these last couple years, especially through COVID. And I am incredibly thankful for those efforts. And I have to think that if God has kept us open through this many years and through that trial, that he has a plan for this church. And there's a reason that we are open at this time in this place. I pray I'm right about that. And, and I pray that we can be a church that exists to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. But imagine if after all those years and getting through COVID and all that work, some, some church, uh, some young pastor and some young church started a church plant right across the lake. And that church suddenly grew to 200 people. How would you feel? There's probably many of us who would be bitter and angry. I can imagine those feelings would only get worse if some of our people would start to go over to that church because that's where God's moving. He's not moving at this church, apparently. And I wonder if that happened, would we be so concerned with our church's legacy and our church's glory and our church's reputation that we would not celebrate God working through someone else? Our highest priority needs to be that God gets the glory, that disciples are made through and for Jesus. Our greatest concern needs to be that the gospel of Jesus is being preached. And what that means is that other churches are not the enemy. There are co-laborers. They are our partners in the gospel. If we had 10 services every Sunday in this building and we filled every single seat, that would not be half the population of Brant Lake, not including Chestertown, not including Pottersville, not including any of the other areas. 
We need to pray for more churches and more evangelists and more pastors. And we need to pray and praise the Lord when he moves and works in other churches around us, even if it can be humbling for us. Amen. If we're focused on our church and our plans and what we want to do in this body and and our numbers and our attendance, that is an easy way for our joy to be gone. That's an easy way for us to be ineffective ministers of the gospel. But if we as a church keep asking the question, what does Jesus want with this church? Then our joy will be in serving Jesus regardless of the results. And we look at other churches growing and discipling and baptizing, and we can say, praise the Lord, we serve the same king. Our joy is not in whether or not our our church meets the world's definition of success, but whether or not we faithfully serve Jesus. And I think about the time in Israel's history right after Moses had died and Joshua was leading the armies of Israel into the promised land right before they crossed the border to enter the land. And and there appeared to be a man in their way blocking the way. And so Joshua goes up to this man. He he asked them, are you for us or for our enemies? And the man replied, neither, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua and the Israelites should have been asking, are you on the Lord's side? And even more importantly, they should have been asking themselves, are we on the Lord's side? Because if our goal is to be on the Lord's side, then our side always wins. And if the Lord is on our side and we're on the Lord's side, who can stand against us? Nobody. All the armies of the world against our one God, they're outmatched, they're outnumbered, and they cannot win. So if our happiness is based in what we want and our plans, it will not last. But if our joy is found in the Lord's plans and His will and what He wants, we cannot lose. But in this passage, John's disciples are not concerned with God's plan. They're focused on themselves and it's robbing them of their joy. It's leading them into discontentment. When our joy is found in ourselves and whatever other idol there could be, we will always be frustrated and disappointed. Pride is a poison that robs you of your joy and it leads you on the way to hell. To rely on your own works is utter foolishness. To try to find joy in yourself is folly. Why? Because you make a terrible, terrible God. You cannot satisfy the desires of your own heart. You can't fix your own mistakes. But I know of one who does and can. So the bad news is that pride destroys lasting joy. But the good news is that complete joy is found in looking to Jesus. Look with me to verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Let me stop right there. John realized that the issue here was pride, and so he drops a truth bomb on his disciples that should annihilate and obliterate any trace of human pride. A person cannot receive anything unless heaven gives it to him. Even the air we breathe is a gift we receive that we think we're entitled to. And in the context of John, this is everything. So many people in Israel believe that they had a right to eternal life by their ancestry, by their blood. They're saying we're God's chosen people and we were promised eternal life. And there were so many people in Israel who believed that their good works, their own religious activities, that their own righteousness would earn them a spot in the kingdom of heaven. 
What have we read from John's gospel again and again? A person cannot receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. Remember John 1, verses 12 through 13, where, where John wrote, All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Remember John 3, 3, where Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and that word again can literally be translated from above, from heaven, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think John, the gospel writer, includes this here to prepare the way for what Jesus will say in chapter 6. In John 6, 44, Jesus will say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Nothing we have, including our very salvation, especially our salvation, is ours unless God gives it to us from heaven. And so we go back to verse 27. We ask, what is John saying here? I think the reason John says what he's saying in verse 27 is because he's saying the only reason that Jesus has followers is because God is giving him followers. And John knows this, and so he rejoices. And look what he says in verse 28. You yourselves bear, wit- bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Once again, we have to remember, John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament, the first prophet in Israel for 400 years. His disciples probably left everything they had to follow him. There would have been an atmosphere of excitement. God is doing something in Israel again. I want to be a part of it. It would have been really easy for John to be prideful, but he takes every opportunity he can to redirect attention away from himself and back to Jesus. So here he reminds his disciples who he is and more importantly, who he is not. And then he goes on to verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy of mine is now complete. It's a weird picture. Why is John talking about a wedding? He uses the picture of the wedding to explain who he is and who Jesus is. He describes himself in the phrase, the friend of the bridegroom. If John was preaching today, I think he he would have described himself as the best man of the wedding, something we could all relate to. Why does John use the picture of a wedding here? According to New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he says this, There is good evidence that in ancient law, the best man was absolutely prohibited from marrying the bride. So what is John the Baptist saying here? He's saying he is the last person on the planet who could compete with the groom. That's not his place. My brother was the best man at my wedding. And then two months later, I was the best man at his wedding. And my wedding day was hands down one of the best days of my life. But two months later... When I was standing next to my brother at his wedding, there was nothing in me that wanted to be the center of attention. I was overjoyed to stand there and to see my brother receive his bride. My favorite moment at weddings is not when the bride walks down the aisle. This is just personally, this is my own opinion. My favorite moment of the wedding is when the bride walks in and then you turn and you see the groom and you see the joy on his face as he sees his bride. And you see the love that he has and the affection. You see how happy the groom is. And you find joy in his joy. 
But John the Baptist is, is not the only one in the Bible who compares Jesus to a groom. Paul does this a couple times. Paul writes in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then a few verses later, he actually tells us that marriage from Genesis 1 is actually a picture of Christ's relationship to his people. Marriage is a covenant relationship between two people who have pledged to love each other unconditionally. And this institution is a mysterious picture from chapter 1 of the Bible of Christ and his bride. That's why the Bible starts with a marriage in Genesis and it ends with a marriage feast in Revelation. So what is John saying here? He's saying, my happiness is not found in my reputation or my ministry or my name or my glory. My happiness comes from Christ getting all the glory. John is saying Christ is coming to die for his bride. He's going to save her from her sin and her shame and rescue her from the judgments of hell. Who cares about my ministry? Don't you understand what's happening? Don't you see that all of human history has been leading up to this moment when Christ will redeem and buy for himself a bride? And look at what he says in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. These are most likely the last words of John the Baptist in this gospel story. John would never get to see most of Jesus' earthly ministry. He wouldn't get to see the cross or the resurrection. He wouldn't get to see Jesus' miracles and his ascension to heaven. He wouldn't get to see the beginning of Christ's church on earth. No, instead, his story ends early. His story ends with a lonely prison cell and decapitation. With all that coming, how could he simply say, he must decrease and he must increase and I must decrease? Because his joy was not in his ministry or his life, but in Jesus. He knows that the Messiah has come to make all things right. He knows that after thousands of years of waiting on the promises of God, the Christ has come. He knows that Jesus is the Lamb of of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the words of missionary Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. John knows his time is up. He's a monumental figure in the history of God's people, but he's like a presidential bobblehead compared to the Mount Rushmore of Jesus. And because his joy was in Jesus, he could endure anything. He didn't care about his name or his reputation. All he cared was that Jesus received the glory and the praise. And that's why we can say with complete confidence that complete joy comes from looking to Jesus. My prayer this morning was that we would have an eternal joy based on Jesus and who he is. In John 3, 22 through 30, we found two keys to finding joy. We found that pride destroys lasting joy, and we found that complete joy is found in looking to Jesus. So how do we rid ourselves of pride? How do we fight for true joy and not worldly happiness? I have two pastoral charges for you, two ways we can take this passage and apply it to our own lives. First pastoral charge, embrace humility as a witness of Jesus. Embrace humility as a witness of Jesus. Christians of all people should have nothing to be proud of. God did not save you because you were better than most, because you were more religious, more spiritual, that that God was really looking at you and said, oh, that person will be a great minister. I'm going to say, no, no, no. God did not save you because you were better than any other person. 
We were as blind as bats until God gave us eyes to see. We were as dead as Lazarus until he called us out of the grave. Our heart was as hard as stone until he gave us new ones. And it should be our life's ambition to give him all the credit and all the glory as we strive to be witnesses, not of ourselves, but of Jesus. Amen? There is no single Christian or church that is bigger than the mission of Jesus. John was so obsessed with the cross of Jesus that he was willing to lose all his followers and let his ministry die for the glory of Christ. This is why Paul writes, I consider all things a waste except Christ and him crucified. This is the message we preach here. This is all we have to offer as a church. This church is never going to be a mega church. I'll just be honest with you right now. We're never going to be six flags over Jesus offering every program, everything that you could ever imagine. Like, just, just to be honest with you. The biggest thing that we have to offer is Jesus Christ and his God's gospel. God bless those other churches that have all those programs and have all those resources. That's not us. But we have the message of the cross. And our goal is not to be the biggest church in the Adirondacks. Our goal is to make much of Jesus. This church is a beautiful building and an amazing history of ministry of God's service here in the Adirondacks. But the second this church is out to make a name for ourselves and not for Jesus, that's the day we either need to repent or lock the doors and never open them again. But my desperate prayer is that we would find our joy in Jesus because he is worthy. My prayer is that God would use this church to save sinners, not because we're great, but because he is the almighty, loving creator God of the universe. And he loves to pour out his mercy on undeserving sinners. So we pray that we can be faithful and we seek to be a part of his plan and his mission. Because if our joy is in him and his mission, then we will have complete joy from now into eternity. So that's the first pastoral charge. Embrace humility as a witness of Jesus. Second pastoral charge. Humble yourself and trust in the message of Jesus. Humble yourself and trust in the message of Jesus. If you've heard nothing today, hear this pridefully relying on yourself will lead to self-destruction and eventually eternal condemnation. It was the pride of the devil that got him kicked out of heaven. Pride is absolutely self-destructive. And if you love the things of this world more than the maker of this world, that's idolatry. That's worship. And God has promised that those who worship idols will not go to heaven. Our biggest problem is not happiness. Our biggest problem we have is that God is going to judge sinners for all of eternity because he is a good and righteous God and we are undeserving sinners. Our our biggest problem is not happiness. Our biggest problem is the judgment of God. You and I deserve eternal condemnation for our pride and for our idolatry. And that's the bad news, but the good news is this. Jesus died for the prideful and the idolatrous. He died for every kind of sin and every kind of sinner. Jesus was never prideful a day in his life. In fact, though Jesus was God from all eternity, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. 
And therefore God has elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this is the offer. If you'll turn from your pride and trust in his sacrifice, he will forgive. He will show grace. So humble yourself and trust in the message of Jesus. But let me also say, that message is not just for the non-Christians. You and I fail daily at being a witness like John was. We all fail to give God the credit and all the glory that he deserves. We fail to be his witnesses like we should. And I don't bring this up so you can wallow in your shame. I bring this up because you need to remember, Christian, that Christ has paid for your sin. He is the bridegroom. And if you are in Christ, you are the bride of Jesus. He has made you holy through his gospel. He has given you white robes of his righteousness. And though your sins were like scarlet, through Christ they have been made as white as snow. When Jesus was at the Last Supper, he said, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then he said that he wouldn't drink of this wine until he would drink it with us in the Father's kingdom. This is why we take communion. Because every time we take the bread and drink the cup, we are looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Every single time. We're proclaiming His death until He comes. And we're looking forward to the day when we will dwell in perfect peace and love and happiness in His presence for all of eternity. And so usually we just do communion once a month. But I thought this text, looking forward to the marriage of Christ and His people, just called for us to look forward to that in the wine and in the bread. Communion is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And if you haven't humbled yourself and trusted in the message of Jesus, this is what we ask you. Do not take. This is only for believers. Instead, the invitation for you is to take Jesus himself. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.